Well, today we are going to continue our study of Joshua with one verse only, Joshua 13, 33. I always turn to Judges when I'm trying to get to Joshua. Joshua 13, 30. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. But to the tribe of the Levites, but to the tribe of Levi, I should say, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. Amen. Please be seated. I want to talk about three things today. Uh, they're not three points, really. Three, three topics, you might say. Uh, I'll make all the points at the end. Uh, I want to talk about, first of all, the Levites that we just read about. And then, secondly, I want to talk about the priesthood of believers. Priesthood of believers for a few moments. And then finally, and this is the, where, where, we, where the payoff comes, is that the Lord is our inheritance. So Levites, priesthood of believers, and the Lord is our inheritance. So that's, you'll know where we are when we start talking about the Lord being our inheritance. Well, who are the Levites? We've read about the Levites here. We've been reading about them throughout the book of Joshua. Well, the tribe of Levi, of course, Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, it's one of the tribes of Israel, but they were separated by God for his service in the tabernacle and later the temple once that was built. And at the time of the Exodus, God proclaimed his right to all firstborn Israelite males. And that happened, of course, in Egypt uh, when you had the, the death of the firstborn, uh, the plague of the angel coming through and, and killing the firstborn of Egypt. But the firstborn Israelite males were declared gods. But once they got into the wilderness, he determined that the tribe of Levi be dedicated to his service in place of the firstborn. So instead of every family giving up their firstborn to the service of the temple, he took the whole tribe of Levi. So that's where the Levites are. They are designated to God's service for Israel. And in addition, they performed this important service for the other tribes by substituting for their firstborn. Their lives were dedicated to service of God in and about the temple. If you look at Joshua 18:7, a similar statement is made there. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. The priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. In Numbers 18, we see this uh, laid out by Moses from God. The Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary, and you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. And with you bring your brothers also. Aaron was of the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. They shall keep guard over you 
and over the whole tent, but you shall not come, but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or to the altar, lest they die and you die. They shall join you and keep guard over the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent, and no outsider shall come near you. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar that they may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So Aaron, of course, as I said, was of the tribe of Levi, and he and his descendants served as the priests, and the, particularly the high priest. The rest of the tribe of Levi <clears throat> helped these priests in various ways. <clears throat> so, excuse me. So all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Some helped the priests. The original main tasks of the Levites was to carry the tabernacle, the ark and the other implements of worship from place to place, to disassemble this portable sanctuary before its transport and set it up afterwards. They were also to guard it, as we read there in Numbers 18. Now, Levi himself had three sons. Kohath, Gershon, and Merari. And as you read through the book of Joshua, it'll talk about these various clans. And they each had specific duties pertaining to the tabernacle. The sons of Kohath, the Kohathites, were in charge of carrying the furniture, uh, the altar and the, 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 all the various utensils used in the worship of God. They carried the furniture after it had been carefully covered by the priests who alone could touch it. And they were supervised by Aaron's son, Eleazar. Uh, the sons of Gershon, the Gershonites, cared for the coverings over the tents, the screens and hangings under the supervision of Aaron's son, Ithamar. And then finally, Merari's sons, the Merarites, had the task of carrying and erecting the frame of the tabernacle and the court. So this big tent or tabernacle with all of its various coverings, uh, all these Levites took care of that and set it up and broke it down as they moved from place to place in their wilderness wanderings. Now, because the tribe of Levi had not been allotted land within Canaan, the Levites had no direct means of support. They, they couldn't farm uh, or really do a lot of shepherding. Um, so, for their support, they received a tithe, a tenth of both the harvest and the livestock, of which they in turn were to give a tenth of that tenth to the priests. Joshua 13:14. Back up a few verses, it says, To the tribe of Levi alone Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. So that's what that's talking about there in verse 14. So if they didn't have any land, where do they live? Well, they, they uh, were given cities to dwell in. You read all about it in chapter 21, all the cities that were given to the Levites, and they were spread out, these cities were spread out in all the different tribes. So the Levites lived everywhere. Joshua 14.4, no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in, and their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. 
So once the temple was built, the, the duties of the Levites changed. They didn't have to carry the temple around. It was a, a fixed structure. So that part of their job ended, but they began to be assistants in the care of the temple and in the offerings that were given. They were to stand with the priests at prayer and offering times, and they were to take care of the temple treasuries. And some were to be officers and judges, others gatekeepers, and others were musicians. So the Levites assisted in everything pertaining to the temple once the monarchy took on, and especially under Solomon. You read about it in First Chronicles 23, where the, the duties of the Levites were, were uh, divvied out in the new uh, setting with a new temple. So, the Levites, they were dedicated to God and his service and the service of the people. They had the privilege of having their entire lives centered around the worship of God. They didn't have to worry about provisions because the people supported them so that they could do their work. They didn't have to go to war because they were focused in on that work. They were able to be closer to God than the rest of the people because at that time, of course, God's presence was in the Holy of Holies, in the very center of the temple, and only the high priest could go in there once a year. So they were closer to the Lord than anybody else on a moment-by-moment basis. And that's why verse 33 states that the Lord is their inheritance. And it says there in verse 33, just as he said to them. He said it back in Numbers 18, 20. The Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. And then Moses in Deuteronomy 10 repeats that same statement. Now, of course... The fact that the Lord was their inheritance was supposed to be true of every Israelite. Judah, Dan, Gad, Asher, all the various tribes. The other tribes did receive land, but they, and they too were called to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. He was supposed to be the center of their lives. But in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, only select individuals could enter God's direct presence in worship, the Aaronic priests, and more specifically, the high priest alone. But under the New Covenant, under the New Covenant, the New Testament, all believers have been made priests to God. And that's where we get to the second thing, the priesthood of believers. 1 Peter 2.9 is probably the most well-known of these verses. Peter tells these believers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. They were a royal priesthood, and this was prophesied by Isaiah. Isaiah 61, you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations in their glory. You shall boast. He's, he's prophesying about the coming kingdom of Christ, the Messiah. Isaiah 66, some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. And then when you get to the book of Revelation, Revelation 1, 4, uh, that we read for our call to worship. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Revelation 5, <clears throat> where you see the, uh, the throne room and, and the lamb who is opening the seals uh, of God's will. It says there, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, <clears throat> and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe <clears throat> and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. A kingdom and priests to our God. And then in Revelation 20, <clears throat> verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So <clears throat> New Testament believers are priests to God. So there is no longer a priestly class within the, the people of God, but all believers share in Christ's priestly status by virtue of their union with him. By faith. Christ is the ultimate high priest. And if you have faith in him, you are, you are united to him by faith. And you share in his priestly status. Although there was a select group of priests in the Old Testament who mediated the knowledge, the forgiveness of sins, the presence of God for the rest of Israel, Christ has come and fulfilled the priestly role through his life, death, and resurrection. Therefore, Christ was the final priestly mediator between God and his people, and Christians share in that role through him. This means that Christians are not dependent upon the priests within the church to interpret scripture for them or affect God's blessing of forgiveness for them. All Christians are equally priests through Christ and stand upon the same ground before the cross, dependent upon his grace. So believers are, as Peter says, a chosen race. God has chosen us for himself. We are a royal priesthood. We have access to God, to his very presence. We are a holy nation set apart for him, a people for his own possession. We belong to him. So in Christ, we can all enter God's direct presence. For he has gone before us as our high priests. And we also go with him, for we are united to him by faith. What a, what a privilege it is that the Lord has bestowed upon us, that we can have access to God, direct access, a personal relationship with him because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. The Lord has given himself to us. We can know him, and one day we will see him face to face. And that brings us to the final point. <clears throat> the Lord is our inheritance. And that's what we're talking about here. We can draw near. We can know God. The writer of Hebrews tells us to, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. We don't have to go to a priest. We can go to the throne of grace in prayer and in worship. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 7, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We can draw near to God through Christ. And what did Jesus say in his high priestly prayer? This is eternal life. What is eternal life? That they may 
know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That they may know you, not know about you, but know you. This is eternal life, the knowledge of God. Now, last week I talked about our inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Now, what is the greatest feature of that inheritance? You think about heaven, or the new heavens and new earth, the hope that we have in Christ. What's the greatest thing about it? Is it that, well, we're not going to hell? That's pretty good. Nobody wants to go there. We read about it in those catechism questions, and it kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth. You don't want to go there. That's good. Or maybe we could say it's the the battle with sin is over. The battle with decay, the battle with sickness, ill health, all kinds of suffering. Our battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil will be over. And there will be true shalom, true peace. That's good too. Or is it the prospect of seeing loved ones who have died before you, you know, done a lot of funerals and um, especially when you see the the death of a widow or a widower you know the a lot of people say oh well they're probably up in heaven right now seeing you know their husband or their wife and having a grand reunion there that may be true but Jesus said there's no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven and so our relationships in heaven will not carry over. The relationships we have here will not carry over. Now, some people will get upset about that. <laughs> Don't get upset about that. Whatever relationship we have with, our, with one another is going to transcend and be far better than we could ever imagine it, it to be. We will have a perfect relationship with everybody. I don't know what that's going to be like, but it's going to be far better than these relationships we have on earth. So I don't think that's the greatest thing about heaven and the new heavens and new earth. None of these things really are. They're all good things, but they're not the greatest thing. None of these things are. The greatest thing, the greatest thing about heavens, about heaven and the new heavens and new earth, is that we will see God and we will know him perfectly. That's the greatest thing. That's the greatest thing that we've got now. And that's the point I'm making here today. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. How well does God know you? He knows everything about you. He knows the intentions of your heart. He knows your attitude at any moment of the day. Everything is laid bare before God. When we get there, we will know everything about him like we've been known. That's astounding. And I'm sure that's what we've been doing for eternity is just exploring that. We read the Confession of Faith where it says, it summed up what the Confession of Faith says, Chapter 31, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God 
who gave them the souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory. That's what it's all about. Now, you remember last week I read from Ephesians 1, if you were here, Ephesians 1, 13, Paul is addressing this group of believers, and he says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now, that word guarantee is what I want to focus in on. Why is the Holy Spirit the guarantee of our future inheritance? I mean, God could have just given us his word, and that would have been enough. But God gives us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee. And that word guarantee that's translated here uh, is a commercial term, and it means a first installment, a down payment, some Some versions say down payment. In fact, the ESV footnote will say down payment if you're looking at it. He is a a, a payment or a pledge. It's earnest money. When you go to buy a house, you give them $500 earnest money to show that you're serious and you're going to buy the house. So you've promised $200,000. Earnest money is a down payment. You're giving some of what you're going to give more later. So if we're getting the Holy Spirit as a down payment, we're getting God as a down payment. We're getting him in our hearts to be with us, to dwell in us. And we're going to get more of him later. That's why he's the down payment. Because that's what we get when we have the Lord as our Savior. He is the guarantee. And that's why Paul prays the verses afterwards. That the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He wants you to have wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God so that you can know God. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know What is the hope to which he has called you? What is the hope to which he has called you? It's himself. It's himself. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? It's himself. He is the riches. He is Jesus' priceless treasure, as the hymn says. When you go to Revelation 4 and you get a glimpse into the throne room of God, John, in his vision, sees a door open in heaven. And what does he see there? His eyes immediately go. He doesn't, you know, maybe he's looking around. You may think, well, is he looking around for his folks? Is he looking around for his mom, his grandma? No, his eyes turn to the throne immediately. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. That's where his eyes and every creature surrounding the throne, 24 elders and four creatures, they're all looking at the throne beholding it face to face. And these four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And the day and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Night and day, they never stop. 
Holy, holy, holy. There is a worship going on continuously night and day. And when the 24 elders hear it, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Everything is focused in on God. And their greatest joy and delight is to never stop worshiping. That's what, they're just filled with it. They can't take their eyes off God in never ceasing worship. In Revelation 22, as the new heavens and new earth are described for us there, it says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. We have the Spirit as a down payment of that. We can have that now in the Spirit, that utter delight in the Lord. He is our inheritance. Do you consider Him your inheritance? Can you say with the psalmist, Psalm 16, I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. The best thing in my life is you. Can you say that today? Or Psalm 73, 25 through 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Who can say that? Not I. My flesh and my heart may fail... But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's my inheritance. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. Near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. If you want to turn to the New Testament, you've got the pearl of great price. Pearl merchant looking for pearls. He finds one of great price. He sells everything he had for that one pearl. What has he got at the end? He's got one pearl. He has nothing else. But that's all he needs. Or the next parable, the parable of the, of the, the treasure in the field. The man discovers a field with treasure in it. He sells all that he has and gets that field so he can have that treasure. His heart was completely enamored with the treasure. The pearl merchant's heart was completely enamored with the pearl. They didn't need anything else. Or the flip side, the prodigal son. What did he want? He didn't want the father. He wanted the father's stuff. So he could go off and do what he really wanted to do, which was party. And he discovered the error of his ways, thankfully. But even the older son, he really didn't want the father. He, he also just wanted the father's stuff. And he certainly didn't want the, the younger son. Well, look at that song we just sang. <clears throat> Uh, yet not I, but through Christ in me, the first line. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? Do you consider it a, him a gift? There is no more for heaven now to give. There's nothing more than heaven can give me if I've got Jesus. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to his. 
We'll have revival when everybody can sing that truly. And I don't know that we can truly sing that until we get to heaven. You know, because obviously none of us can say that we love the Lord. That's what our confession of sin was about, right? That we fail to love. Our love grows cold. We love things of the world more than we love the Lord. We love the blessings more than we love the blesser. We love the gifts more than we love the giver. Will we be disappointed in heaven because it's going to be about worshiping God? If you don't like worshiping God now, what makes you think you'll like it then? Are we Christians in name only? Is it just in our heads? Presbyterians are bad about that. You know, we like to accumulate knowledge. And sometimes our hearts can be very cold. Do we enjoy reading about God? Do we enjoy talking to him? You know, you talk most to the people you love the most. Our catechism says, number one, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do we enjoy the Lord? Well, I suspect, like me, you're convicted of, of, of this. So how do we get there? How do we get our hearts off the things of the world, off the things that we love, that we shouldn't love, and on to God? Well, first of all, God is an acquired taste. God is an acquired taste. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We are to taste the Lord. Try him out. Read his word. Learn about him. You know, think of it like a relationship. When you, you know, when you were younger and you started dating somebody, you asked questions all about them. You know, you, you, you learned about their life, where they came from, where their hometown was, you know, all their likes, dislikes, all these things. You learned about them and you talked to them and you grew in love with them, right? That's how it works. It's the same is true of God. Learn about him. Talk to him. Call upon the name of the Lord, and he'll save you. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know, a lot of people read that, and they go, oh, good. I can get a Porsche if I delight myself in the Lord. No. Obviously, what you need, if you're, if you're delighting in the Lord, if you enjoy the Lord in your heart more than anything else, what's he going to give you? The desires of your heart. What's the desire of your heart? If you're delighting in the Lord, the desire of your heart is the Lord. So he's saying if you delight in the Lord, if you seek to enjoy the Lord, you will get the Lord. He will give himself to you. Now, finally, last minute or so, why would you want to? Why why would you want to have the Lord as the center of your life? Why should you? Well, God is a loving Heavenly Father, and He wants the best for His creation, for His people especially. He always has our, our best interests at heart. That's, you have to take that on faith and what He says in His Word, but most importantly, all you have to do is look at Jesus. God Himself so desired to have us in relationship with Himself that he became a man, came to earth, suffered 
a cruel death on the cross, died in our place so that we could have access to God. That's the greatest demonstration of love. And look at that. Is someone like that trying to ruin your life? Is someone like that trying to uh, rob you of joy in the world? No. He loves you and he wants to know you. And that's what you were created for. That's what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden before sin. uh, For they sinned and sin broke the whole thing. Well, the Levites' inheritance was the Lord. And, you know, as we read before, the priests were the only ones allowed to be in God's presence in the Old Testament. We have so much more now than the priests because we're priests ourselves. We have direct access in Christ to, to God. We have the Spirit dwelling in us. And there's so much more to come. We're going to see face to face. We're going to know as God knows us. And it's going to blow our minds. Be beyond our wildest imaginations. I don't think we can imagine, according to scriptures, what that's going to be like. So I hope, I hope all of us will commit ourselves to centering our lives on God looking at our lives and what are our rituals, what are the things that we do day in and day out, and are these things that are helping us delight in God, in the Lord, in Christ, or, or is it directing our attention elsewhere to other loves? That's a challenge for all of us. May the Lord grant us grace. If you've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good at all in your life, I would invite you to cry out to God. He will in no way cast you out if you come to him. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, again we come to you thanking you for your word. Uh, Week in and week out, Lord, your word speaks to us, and I pray that you would give us ears to hear, heart to receive, and um, pray that that you would change us, Lord. We're so cold, um, and, and our heart is in love with things of the world. Pray that you would forgive us, revive us, rekindle our first love, help us to put to death those actions, those sins that we commit that that pull us away from you, that break our fellowship with you, that cause our hearts to love things of the world more than we love you. And Lord, if anybody is here, I pray that they even now would pray to you and say, Lord, I want to turn from this sinful lifestyle of rejecting you and, or of using you or of ignoring you and know what it is to have a relationship with you. I pray that you would change our hearts today in Jesus' name. Amen.